I want to uh, start with prayer, and then we're going to kind of review what we did last week and then talk about this communal lament. And I think if last week was appropriate for our own lives, this week is appropriate for the world, right, and what we're called to do um, as believers in Jesus Christ. So pray with me if you would. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for a chance to already have confessed you as Savior and to know you as Lord and uh, forgiver of our sins. I, I pray now, Father, that we would have an attentive mind towards you that we would have eyes fixed upon you, ears listening to you, and that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We ask, Lord, that you would help us understand your scripture, that you inspired to be lived and recorded and passed down to us, that we could now know it more deeply and live it out in our lives. May you shape us to your word, Father. Would you do that? Only you can. That's why we ask you for it. Help us today to see you through your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to talk this week about going from the idea of I to we, right? Last week it was a lot about my own personal things, the things that I may be dealing with that I have to lament, the things that are broken. And we left off last week with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying that prayer, and then God the Father forsaking Jesus on the cross for our sins. And, and so as much as last week we kind of ran from the Psalms to the cross, this week I want to come from the cross into the Psalms. Thinking about Jesus' early ministries, he... Um, Oh, I got to pull something else out I forgot about. He, he was calling ordinary men and women to follow him. And I know traditionally we would say, well, he called men, and he did. But there were women constantly in the group, right? And so he called people to follow him. But I want you to understand something about the men and women that he called to follow him. And it's this. They were ordinary people. There's a tendency to believe that... Um, that they are uh, somehow super apostles or super, uh, you know, gifted or super different than we are. But the truth is, I want you to understand that when Jesus called people to follow him, it was people just like you and me. They were ordinary folks. And, and I want to start with that from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 5, verse 8. And this is actually Peter uh, talking to Jesus. But I want you to see Peter's response, an ordinary man to a holy God. Because you see, G Peter and the, uh, some of the uh, disciples, who were not yet disciples, had been fishing all night, right? And they had caught nothing. And then this guy, Jesus, gets in their boat and puts out and begins to teach the people. And after they fished all night and listened to this guy teach the people from their boat in the morning, then Jesus says, I want you to do something different. I want you to try something different now, Peter. I want you to go out and put down in the deep. And the fishermen, they protest. They're like, we've been fishing all night. There's nothing in this lake. Nothing is biting right now. And he says, I want you to try to do something different. I'm just kind of amazed how the fact that God can show up in ordinary lives and say, I want you to believe something different might be possible. And in this moment, they let the nets down. You know the story, right? They let the nets down out of the boat. And, and by the way, here's a side note for you. If Jesus commands something, just do it. You know, I, I'm with Peter. I'm like, ah, it's not going to work. I mean, you know, the problems with that. You know, we've tried it before. We did it all the time. We were doing it and just do it. Of course, whenever they let the nets down, there's so many fish, they can't get them back in the boat. It's just a hot mess. I mean, this is a good problem to have if you're a fisherman, right, Ryan? I mean, come on, you know. But guess what? I want you to see what Peter, how Peter responds. And this is what Peter does in 5.8. It says, when Simon Peter saw this, what, the great catch of fish, the command of Jesus, the obedience to Jesus, 
he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. <laughs> that his response to Jesus' miraculous catch of fish is not, wow, look at all the fish we got. Look at how awesome. But there was this encounter with God that recognized him as holy, and Peter falls down. By the way, it says that Jesus' knees, I always read that as his feet. I thought Peter was like on his face in the boat. He fell at his knees, and you can almost imagine in that position, he's pleading, and he says this, go away from me, Lord, that's Cordios, commander, why? Because I'm a sinful man. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve this. Who am I? And Peter rightly recognizes that there's a sin separation between ordinary people and a holy God. Well, that reminded me, that encounter with Jesus, that's very real. I wanted to, that to draw us into the Psalms. Right? But before we go to the Psalms, I want to take one more stop over, and this is going to be in uh, Isaiah. But I don't lose my marker. Isaiah chapter 6. Now, this is Isaiah being invited into the temple of God to see God being worshiped for who he is. And if you've not read Isaiah 6, I'd encourage you to read it because it gives a grand and beautiful picture of God. And in the moment, here he sees God in the holy temple. It says the whole temple is filled with smoke. It says that the angels rejoicing, the seraphim singing around God, sang to such an extent that the pillars of the posts were shaking. See, we said we're going to sing forever. It says the room's going to vibrate with God's presence. That's what's happening. And as Isaiah sees this holy moment, there's smoke, the seraphim are singing, and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the room is quaking. And in the middle of this, I want you to see Isaiah's response. This is in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. Woe to me, Isaiah cried out. I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord, that's Yahweh of power. Isaiah knows instantly. He's like, whoa, this reminds me of Peter. You know, because it's all about who comes first, right? So Isaiah has had the experience. Peter has experience in the boat, but this is the experience. But I want you to see what Isaiah does. He's so overwhelmed with the presence of God. He's so enamored, amazed, blown away, freaked out, I would even say, by being in God's presence that not only does he say, um, I'm a sinful man, but he would have added the Peter statement, and I'm from a people, a sinful people. I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. In this moment, Isaiah confesses not just his problems, but the world's problems. Not just his problems, but his family's problems. Not just his problems, but his nation's problems. Indeed, people's problems. You could rightly interpret that as saying, woe to us. We are a people of unclean lips. And I wanted to use those two things to kind of take us on this journey from this idea of I to we. One of the conversations that's happening globally is what's our communal responsibility? 
That's this whole thing's been, right? Are, am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for other people? And, and you may have caught on to this already, but culturally, uh, in our culture, we have a tendency to think individualistically. My responsibility, my life, my goals, my things, right? And so this might be a harder thing to move. I actually thought about this morning, if we're singing praise songs, how does a song change if we go from I to we? Do you ever do that? Like, how does a song change if you stop saying it's about me and about, but about us? And by the way, spoiler alert, uh, both are true. Because <laughs> there are people who want to run off the other side and go, well, it's all us and no, no me. That's not true either. It's me and us. As Isaiah says here, I am a man of unclean lips. Look at the word. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And he knows it when he meets God. He knows it's not right. And so with those things kind of in mind, that we're making this move from I to we in the communal lament, I want to remind us of what we talked about last week. Hopefully you got an engagement sheet today like this. Um, if, if you're watching online, they're available. They're not available, actually, now that I think about it. But uh, you can take notes on your own. Um, oh, also, I did want to say that there's a blast coloring sheet. If you've got kiddos at home, they want to color, there's a sheet on the website you can print and use as well. Uh, but at the bottom of our engagement sheet here, if you're in, here in person, there's those four. I want to list those off for you again. I've modified them a little bit, but the same principle this week. So um, last week, we said the step one of this lament, biblical model lament, was go to God. It's still true, but I want to say this week, return to God or remember God because we're going to see that in the Psalms of communal lament that there's a remembering and a returning to God in the Psalm the second step in that process is going to be to complain we said it last week complain and confess yeah still complaining about the situation we find ourselves in the third is that we ask God to help remedy it and then the fourth, last week we said trust and wait, and this week I want to say simply believe. That at the end of the day, the people of God become a people of faith, that they believe God will do something. I've heard it said over the years that, oh, there's, there's different modes. God was saving people in different ways. I don't believe that that's true. I, I, I think the Hebrews 11 teaches us that God has always been saving people through faith. They simply believed he could do it. They didn't see it all the time. They didn't live it all the time. They didn't experience it all the time. But they believed God will see us through. And so those are the four things. Remember God, complain, ask God, and believe. And we see this modeled in the Psalms. So now I want to go ahead and turn to a few. Um, now you're going to get your Bible out, if you would, and I'm going to invite you to turn to Psalm 79. We're going to start there in Psalm 79. And I'm going to read it, and then we'll talk through it, and we'll probably talk through a couple of these as we go here. Psalm 79, a psalm of Asaph. Real quick, Asaph, by the way. Asaph was um, someone who, had, who was a Levite. That means he was a priest. I'll mention this because, by the way, uh, last week the psalms were mostly Davidic psalms. We read David, King David's psalms. This week we're going to get a... a cornucopia of psalms from different authors and this is asaph's psalm one of his psalms he wrote a whole bunch of them um, a, a kind of above the 
80, number 80 and above. But Asaph was a Levite who served under both King David and King Solomon. His task was to sing in the presence of the king and in the temple, but he served two kings, David and his son Solomon. That means he's seen a whole bunch of stuff. I don't have a whole lot to say about that except that David, I said last week I was envious of David's intimacy with God. I think what we see with Asaph and others is they see this bigger picture of what God is doing beyond David's personal relationship with God. And so he serves two kings, and he wrote a bunch of the communal laments of the uh, 13 that we have. So this is what he says, Asaph. O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have reduced Jerusalem to rubble. They have given the dead bodies of your servants as food to the birds of the air, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there is no one to bury the dead. We are objects of reproach from our neighbors, of scorn and derision to those who are around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that do not call your name. For they have devoured Jacob, and they have destroyed his homeland. Do not hold against us the sins of the fathers. May your mercy come quickly to meet us, for we are in desperate need. Help us, O God, our Savior, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Before our eyes, making known among the nations that you avenge the outpoured blood of your servants. May the groans of the prisoners come before you. By the strength of your arm, preserve those condemned to die. Pay back into the laps of our neighbors seven times the reproach they have hurled at you, O Lord. Then we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will praise you forever from generation to generation. We will recount your praise. So hopefully, even as we're reading through it, you can be thinking about those four processes of lament, those four steps of lament. The first is that Asaph goes to God, just like David, right? He goes to God, and so simply, he says, oh God. It's kind of funny, if you take the out of the psalm, like, that's still something we say right now, right? Like, even the, like, kids, OMG, my stuff's following my Bible. Like, it's still a common phrase. Isn't that amazing? Like, 2,000 years later, that's still something that we say. We have a shorthand for it, OMG. I have a tendency to say, OM goodness, because I try not to, you know, try, I tried lightly with the Lord's name. But hey, oh God, like to cry out to the one who made us. And that would be Elohim. So, so the, God, the God of gods, like God, I cry out to you. And Asaph cries out to God. And it's such a simple address to cry out to him in your time of need. But check it out. He then begins, and this is what's so funny about reading the Psalms. And this is what's so funny about our cultural moment. I just want you to hear his complaining. He's pretty good at it, right? And he goes like, the nations have invaded your inheritance. That's the first complaint. They have defiled your holy temple. They have reduced Jerusalem to rubble. And he doesn't mean figuratively. He means they're really tearing the place apart. Like literally. The buildings are falling down. They have given the dead bodies of your servants as food to the birds of the air and the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. Listen, and this is wild, man, but we act like we're the first persons to have trouble in this life. 
we read the psalm, we're like, oh, that's poetic language. I mean, listen to what it says. They have poured out blood like water all around Jerusalem. That's God's holy city. And there is no one to even bury the dead. Like, the bodies are stacking up. This is terrible. I'm convinced that we don't even know the beginning of suffering. As a matter of fact, church, if I could just say for a moment, part of what I think we need to do in this exercise of lament is prepare ourselves, steal ourselves for what might be coming. Like, I'm having a bad day because I'm low on gas. <laughs> like, we don't know what persecution means. And I want you to inherit the, the godly gift of uh, lament that we can join God's people we don't long for these days, but they might very well come. He goes on, poured out like water. Verse 4, they're objects of reproach to our neighbors. Everyone around us mocks us and scorns us. And then he begins to ask. You see it? So he complains, and now he asks in verse 5, How long, Yahweh, will you be angry forever? That's something that's foretelling of what's coming. How long will your jealousy burn like fire? And then he asks this directly, verse 6, Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that do not hold and call to your name, because they're devouring Jacob and destroying Jacob's homeland. Do not hold against us the sins of the fathers. May your mercy come quickly to meet us, because we are in, what's the word say, desperate need. I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. Don't hold our father's sins against us. We desperately need you to meet us here. Verse 9, he continues to ask, Help us, O God, our Savior, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Why should a nation say, where is their God? See, and there's this whole thing that Israel is doing. He's like, when God is mocked and when God's people are mocked, God is mocked. <laughs> and he kind of goes back and he's like, I believe in you. They're making fun of us and they're making fun of you. How long will we wait for your wrath? How long will we wait for, wait for your vengeance? For your name's sake. Before our eyes, the request says, make known among the nations that you avenge the outpoured blood of your servants. May the groans of the prisoners come before you by the strength of your arm. Preserve those condemned to die. And, and it goes on. Pay back into the laps of our neighbors seven times the reproach they've hurled upon you, O Lord. This might be a weird thing. You think, oh, wait a minute, pour out the wrath on our neighbors, right? But there is this cry for our neighbors to know God. But there's this other side. It's when neighbors are rejecting God, we should be lamenting that. One of my favorite um, theologian pastors, as you probably know, is John Piper. And I was listening to John Piper preach one time. And, and like we were at a conferencing together in person, which is, you know, such a blessing to be there in the room. And he was saying, just because we believe that God saves some and doesn't save others, should we be indifferent toward the others? And I'll never forget it. He goes, no, we should plead and beg for their lives. We should beg God to have mercy and beg them to believe. You read this, God, just pour out your wrath, and we can get there, right? We're like, we're just so sick of being persecuted. Just take these people out. But that's a long way. Like, we, we need to have a right position where we're saying, God, save them. And then to our neighbors, we just sang that song, right? Proclaim it to the masses. What? That he is God. 
You're not defying me. You're defying God. You're not mocking me. You're mocking God. So he says, cry out. They cry out. Pay back seven times the reproach they've hurled at what? You, O Lord. And then here's the believe part, verse 13. It's, oh, it's like the very end. And by the way, why well, I want to say something about these four steps. Sometimes there's three. Like sometimes they just don't get there. So it's not like this like mechanistic, this is how you have to do it, right? But what I'm hoping is we can see that there's a framework for lament. We always go to God. We always complain about our situation. We ask him to intervene, and then we believe he's going to do it. In verse 13, he says this. Then we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will praise you forever. Now we'll praise you for the day, praise you for the moment, praise you forever. And listen to this. From generation to generation, we will recount or remember your praise. They will continue to remember. I have a question, and I don't know what this ratio is for you, but how often do you think about your own personal problems versus the problems of the world? Like, how often are you, like, stuck in your own, I got my own crisis, my own situation, I need my needs met, and, and, and it's, I, I tell you, church, it's a really hard thing to assess our selfishness. <laughs> Maybe it's not for you. For me, it's really hard, because when I find myself really caught up in my own drama, my own silly, petty little things, I have to be reminded that that's a silly, petty little thing I'm caught up in. What drives us and directs us, Right? How much time do you spend there versus how much time do you spend thinking about the condition of the world? I think we can go on the other side, too. We can be so caught up in the problems of the world, we don't deal with our own real sin problems, you know? We just end up lamenting everyone else's, oh, everybody's a mess, and then you kind of use that as a guard to run and to hide your own failures. We must do both. But how often do you spend in personal lament Versus focusing on the world's problems. How much, listen to me, time in your prayer life do you spend crying out to God because you need his mercy and you want things your way versus the world needs a savior? God, you must intervene. This is not right. This is broken. And like Isaiah and like Peter, we say we are sinful people, listen, among a sinful people. We are in it. Flip back a few pages to Psalm 44. Psalm 44, for the director of music of the sons of Korah, a mesquil. Uh, the sons of Korah, let me think about this, were those who were the lineage of Moses' nephew, Korah. Now, what you understand, have to understand about this is that Moses' nephew, uh, Korah, was a person, but his sons were, were swallowed up by the earth, but he had some survivors. And so these are people who are, who are uh, descendants of Korah, who wrote the psalm. They served in the temple, and they also sang, but, but actually did service as well. Psalm 44, we have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us that you did not, what you did in their days, in days long ago. I want you to see how he, they start with remembering God. They've heard the stories. 
They're remembering him. With your hands, you drove out the nations and you planted our fathers. You crushed the peoples and you made our fathers flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was by your right hand, by your arm, by the light of your face, because you loved them. So they say, we've heard the great stories. We know you've delivered people before. You've delivered your people through the generations. But look at verse 4. They continue confessing in faith, right? You are my king and my God who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you, we push back our enemies, and through your name, we trample our foes. I do not trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me a victory. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God, we make our boast all day long, and we will praise your name forever. Selah. And you're like, man, these dudes are on it. They remember the history of faith, and they're like, and we believe you're with us, and you're on our side, and you're helping us with this. And so they've started out remembering God and confessing his goodness. But check out verse 9. But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy. And our adversaries have plundered us. This is the complaining if you haven't noticed this. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and you have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You've made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. The peoples shake their heads at us. My disgrace is before me all day long, and my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge." All this has happened to us, though we have not forgotten you or have been, not been false to your covenant. Our hearts have not turned back. Our feet are not strayed with, from your path. But you have crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals and covered us with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, I would, would not God have discovered it? Since he knows the secrets of the heart, Yet for your sake, we face death all day long, and we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. I guess quite a turn. God, you've done great things, and you continue to do great things, but we know that you are against us. This psalm, like, stops me in my life. Like, it reforms my life to think about this. And here's, if I had to summarize that, it very well may be God Who's against you? It very well may be God who's resisting us. You go, what? I mean, that's what the, the psalmist, the sons of Korah, dig into here. They're like, you've always been faithful, you've always delivered us, and we've always been believing that you're with us, but you are the one who's turned. You are the one that's holding us back. You made us reproach. And what's the very first? Let me, I want to find it here. It could be God who is, what does the word say, humbled us and rejected us. It very well can be God doing that. What? You know, I think we don't have a category for a God who would go, no. 
No. But we're your people. Yeah, no. Why? He's going to humble his people. He's going to reject his people. And, you, and, and the fear will be forever. The fear would be that that would happen forever. And all the reproach, you heard it in the Psalm of Asaph. Our neighbors are mocking us. What's going on? People are against us. And, and then this psalm is like, it might be God who's pushing back into us. There's nothing quite as arrogant as a people who presume God's care. Nothing quite as arrogant as a people who assume the victory. And that, that's a hard thing. But I want you to see the language is right there. It ought to give us a check in our lives to say, God, are we, you know, I remember years ago, uh, it was, what, 19 to be specific, and, and the nation was hurting. And uh, there was a national refrain. You know what it was? God bless America. Everyone sang it with great passion and exuberance. I did too. Man, now listen to me. I'm talking to the church, not, not the culture, not secularism, the church. I have to wonder, does America bless God? If we want that other side, God, just pour out your blessing. Oh, but are we the people who are worshiping and honoring him? Have we gone our own way? Have we gone astray? And I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about us. Are we a sinful people? Are we a sinful person among sinful people? It's a little weird because it's the nation and the nation, but this is God's people. Like, this isn't a question of if he loves them or if he cares for them. It's like he's going to humble them and he's going to rebuke them or push them back. What did the word say? Humble and reject. Push back. I'm not saying it's for sure, but is it possible? So they lament. And they say, we've not forgotten you. We remember you. We've not strayed from you. And still, I want you to see how they finish with the ask. 23. Awake, O Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. And here's the hope. Do not reject us forever. Even if it's God for a season, don't reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. 26. Redeem us. Why? Because of your unfailing love. Will you not quit on us? Will you not forget us? Big conversation happening about who we are as a people. And we can't we can't fix that, but we can fix who we are as a people. <laughs> who we are as a people. The people of God, right? We, we ought not to expect the culture to exclaim something that we won't exclaim ourselves, that God is God and that he sent his son Jesus to die for us and that, that this um, experiment that we're born into is an experiment in acknowledging and remembering who God is. Rise up and help us, redeem us because of your unfailing love. They cry out to God, the Savior. Following along that same thread, I'm going to turn to uh, Psalm 60. 
I do want to, before we move on from that, though, I do want to ask a question. Is it in your vocabulary, is it in the realm of possibility for you that God might be rejecting or humbling us for a purpose? Because you see one of the things I saw in that Psalm of Karaz, they say, we don't think we're doing things differently. What's going on? And it seems that God has an intent to humble his people. He has an intent to invite them into worship. Psalm 60. Of the director of music to the tune of the Lily of the Covenant, a, mic- a mictum of David. So now we're back to King David for teaching. When he fought Aram Naharaim and Aram Zobah. And when Joab returned and struck down 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. I just want to say that this psalm is written in the middle of a nasty battle, right? David is fighting two nations. The, was it the Amorites? I got it written down because I want to forget here. Let's see. Um, yeah, he's fighting the Amorites and the Arameans. And in the middle of his fighting the enemies, the Amorites and the Arameans, then um, uh, the Edomites, who are descendants of who? Esau. Edom means red. The red people, they come up to try to retake the, the place of God. They kind of try to come up and take the kingdom. And so in the middle of fighting two enemies, he has to send Joab down to defeat the Edomites at the same time. So it's, and all this happens where? In the Valley of Salt, which seems appropriate. It's a pretty salty place. Lots of violence happening. 12,000, I think the historical number is about 18,000 people between those two conflicts, those three conflicts, if you will. This is whenever David came back and they're like, he kills his tens of thousands, right? Here's what David writes. Man, as if Psalm 44. You have rejected us, O God, and you have burst forth upon us. You have been angry. Now restore us. You have shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures for its quaking. I want you to see something that David's doing here. So I think it's so beautiful. He's, he's kind of coming in with both. He's like, he's like lamenting and then he's asking at the same time. He's like lamenting and asking. And if you just watch the sentence structure, I'm going to start again too. You have shaken the land and torn it apart. Now mend its fractures because it's quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine to make us stagger. But for those who fear you, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Selah. So he's kind of going back and forth. Now here's the ask. Save us and help us with your right hand so that those who love you may be delivered. God has spoken from his sanctuary. In triumph I will partial out Shechem and measure off the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I will toss my sandal. Over Philistia, remember the Philistines, I shout in triumph. And he's kind of remembering God's promises at the same time. So he's asking and remembering the promises of God. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies? Give us aid against the enemies. But in the middle of it, he's like, the world's messed up. Would you heal it? He keeps going back and forth. Things are not right. Would you make them right? I don't know what to believe. Would you show me what I ought to believe? In the middle of all this chaos, he keeps turning to God and believing. God is against them. He's like, but you're the one that made the promises, and you're the one that's going to deliver them. 
you proclaim the truth that your enemy will be defeated. Whenever uh, we find ourselves in this uncertain times, right? And, and I'm not even saying now, church, because maybe it's the times to come. But when we find ourselves in uncertain times, when nations are unsettled, when the world seems like it's coming apart, do you believe we should return to God for the victory? Like, do you believe that's true? That we return to God, that we repent and believe he'll bring victory. And then the question is, if you believe that that's what we should do, do we actually do it? Do we actually go back to God? Or are we so busy with our own solutions and our own answers and our own thoughts that we don't even take the time to return to him and ask, oh God, would you deliver the nations? Would you deliver your people from the persecution? David has that heart, doesn't he? He's always like going back to God, back to God. I just want to say one more thing about this. In the middle of a war, he's crying out to God. In the middle of the fight, he's crying out to God. We need you here now in this for victory. All right, we have two more. Flip to Psalm 90. This is to show you the, the structure. Again, it's the structure of lament. Uh, this one is actually a prayer of Moses, which is wonderful. Y'all know who Moses is in the Bible. And this is a prayer recorded in Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Like before all that stuff happened, you turned men back to dust, saying, return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight is like a day that's just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep away men in the sleep of death, like they are new grass in the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it's dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years, or, or 80, if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass away, and we fly away. Isn't it interesting that, that Moses, the man of God, finds himself lamenting of life when he's weary of life? How long will this go on? Our, our whole life is like that. It's over in an instant. We talk about the condition of the things, but uh, again here, uh, Moses says that a day for the Lord is like a thousand years for us, a thousand years like a day. That our whole lives are like a, like a, a, a rising and a falling of a plant in the field, of a new grass. We, he, he kind of laments this weakness. He laments our sin-filled lives, right? We're, you're consumed by your anger. You're terrified by your indignation. And look at verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you. That's our sins. And our secret sins are in the light of your presence. You, you set them in the light of your presence. This can be a, a, a really terrifying thing to believe that God knows everything about us. Our days pass away. We finish the years with a moan, he says. 
But then he asked God, starting in verse uh, 12 here. I'm going to read 11 yet. Let's see. Yeah, yeah. Who knows the power of your anger, for your wrath is great and, your, and, and as, as, as great. Wait, wait. Who knows your anger, for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due to you. Now he starts, ask 12, teach us to number our days rightly, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad as for the days that you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have, been, have seen trouble. So he's like saying, make, make us, give us as many good days as bad, Father. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. And may the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands, Lord. Yes, establish the work of our hands. He's like, make it mean something. Make it valuable in the end. So he asked God to intervene and to um, cause us, what then? To believe May the favor of the Lord rest upon us, establishing the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So Moses cries out to God, do you ever just get weary of life? Like, do you ever just get weary of its brokenness? And I'm not trying to drive you there, because if, if you're not, praise God. But for those seasons where you just go, I've had enough of it, I want to encourage you in those moments to lament. Don't just... Take a deep breath and pretend it's fine. No, lament and go, God, it's not right. Listen to me. Enter into his holy presence. Enter into that holy chamber. He already knows what's going on. And just say, I'm struggling with this. The world's broken this way. We need you to intervene. Would you be our healer and our hope? Would you show me what's going on here? Would you lead me through the day? Would you encourage me to not give up? See, I think a bunch of us are afraid of that kind of language, but here it is. It's so clear. And Moses, the man of God, is crying out for the, 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 the difficulty of life, but he's like, and then bless us. Cause us to see rightly all we have in you. Cause us to do things that are valuable, worthwhile in our lives. Don't waste them away. And we can lament. And I don't know if you feel that with me, but I feel that, that that's a holy place to be. Believing that God will bring us out to better days. The last one then, we're going to end where we started. Verse, uh, Psalm 80. Let's see if I can push this guy. She's not responding. <laughs> yeah, we're uh, stuck on 90 for some reason. A little clicker, clicker ain't clicking. 80. For the director of music to the tune of Lilies of the Covenant of Asaph. Remember Asaph? We started with Asaph, the Levite in the temple. A song. <clears throat> Verse 1. Hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might. Come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. So he starts off right away just praising God and asking God for salvation. Verse 4, 
O Lord Almighty, how long will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? This is the complaining. You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us a source of contention to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Now here's the ask, seven. Restore us, O God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we might be what? Saved. Look at, same, it's a refrain. It's a refrain, the ask. Verse eight. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove it out. You drove out the nations and, plant, and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its boughs to the sea. It shoots as far as the river, and that's a remembrance of God. God has blessed them so much. Now here's the complaint. It's going back and forth, 12. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and the creatures of the field feed on it. Return to us, O God Almighty. Look down us from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the, the root your right hand has planted, your son, the son that you have raised up for yourself. Your wine is cut down. It's burned up with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Here's the ask. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. Restore us, O God Almighty. That's O Lord God Almighty, Yahweh, uh, Elohim of the armies. Make your face shine upon us. Why? That we may be saved. See, at the end of the day, that's what Asaph's crying out for. God, would you save your people? I hope you heard in there. Let your right hand rest on the Son of Man, the one that will be raised up for your purposes. He complains about the state of the nation, but he asks God to return, and when he's returning, bring salvation. Here's the question then. Do we need salvation? And you might go, oh, I know this part. This is where you say, hey, if I know I'm a sinner and I can believe in Jesus. That's not the question I'm asking you. Does the world need to be saved? Not each person, like, acknowledging and committing, yes, of course, for that person. But do we need God's intervention? Do we need the salvation of God? Because the cry out from Asaph here in 80 is that we may be saved. Listen to the last word again. Restore us, O Lord Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Do you think the world needs salvation? Is it possible, church, that God is rejecting us and humbling us to get our attention? Is it possible he's had enough of the same old, same old motion, Christianity, and he's calling the world to repent and believe? Is it possible that the day of his imminent return is approaching? And can we pray that prayer? Can we sing that song? Restore us, O God Almighty. O Lord God Almighty, make, us, make your face shine upon us that we might be saved. Can we pray that prayer for our world? Restore us. Reinvigorate your people. I was amazed this morning while we were gathering in worship, we were singing. And if, if you've not, I would encourage you to go back and review these psalms. If you don't think, like dig through there and see and, and experience that, that lament. But when you, you know, I found myself this morning as we were singing, 
stirring my own soul to sing, yes, God, we need you. You bring the victory. Where are you in that? I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for my sins. Praise God. So do I. But where are you in the world situation? Where are you with the, with the, the neighbors who mock? <laughs> like, where are we? Lament and pray that prayer. Uh, pray with me if you would. God, restore us. Cause us to see what you're doing in the world. Oh, that we might not be arrogant, that we might recognize that you are holy and we are not that we would join that faithful confession of the saints that we are sin-filled people, or we're sin-filled persons among a sin-filled people, that we have unclean lips among a people of unclean lips, and that we need you, that our neighbors need you, that our world needs you. And Lord, the truth is we can't, you know, we lament all that, but at the end of the day, you have to make it right, but we can proclaim you. May it start with us. May we have the courage, may we have the conviction, may we have the call to be faithful to you, to join the great psalmists and songwriters to say, you are worthy of worship. I'll be honest with you, God, like, it's, it's terrifying sometimes. Who's going to be the one to stand up? Who's going to be the one to say something? It might cost us our lives, Father, but would you call us to be bold to believe, to hope, to pray that your salvation's coming. Oh, Lord, the world needs it. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray it in your mighty name. Amen.